Welcome to the Painting Lines Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things tennis. Join Eric and Aiden in their discussion for updates on news and pop culture, and from hot takes to betting, they've got you covered. Ready? Set. Welcome back to Painting Lines. Last week we gave a recap of Wimbledon, and this week with Stan Vavrenka making a run to the finals in the Croatia Open, we wanted to do a player spotlight talking about his career and kind of what made him the player he is today. So, uh, Eric, just starting us off, do you have any kind of thoughts of him as a player overall? Yeah, I mean, um, like you said, he kind of flies under the radar, uh, at least to me, you know. But with him making the finals today, unfortunately not being able to get it done, kind of brings him back on in the spotlight. And that's when I really wanted to dive in and look at who Stan Favrenka is. So found out a lot of cool stuff when researching him today. Pretty excited to get into it. Don't have any initial thoughts of him as a player per se, but I pretty much just know him as one of the top five, you know, behind Murray. So yeah, what about you? What are you yeah. thinking? Definitely one of the top five players like of this era, but he kind of had a very slow start to his career. Only had one title in the first eight years, turned pro in 2002. And he was a guy that was consistently in like the top 50. And then eventually as his career progressed, he settled in around like the top 20. So when you see a guy like that, it's really interesting because once a guy is kind of settled in around the top 20, you don't necessarily expect them to break through into that next level and become a Grand Slam champion. Mm -hmm. But with Stan, it was actually different. And I think what the big thing that happened with him was he made a coaching change for a large portion of his career. And when he was a, a junior, he was coached by Dmitry Zavialov, kind of like a childhood coach. And then around 2010, he changed to Peter Lundgren, who was a former world number 25, I believe. And then in 2013, he changed coaches again to the former world number two, Magnus Norman. And to me, based on the timing of that, it seems like that was a really a critical decision because after 2013 is really when he started to break out. Mm -hmm. And thinking of that now, do you think other guys on the tour should be considering making coaching changes? Because it seems like it was critical for him taking that step to the next level and becoming a Grand Slam champion. Should other guys maybe consider doing that? I mean, there are guys on the tour right now that probably will never win a Grand Slam unless they're able to change something and make that next step, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to echo what you said. I do think it is critical because I know Norman helped him with his forehand. Like Stan didn't have that great of a forehand. You know, he's mostly known for his one-handed backhand and big serve. So got his forehand fixed, which I think helped propel him to the next level too. And then also the psychological mindset, you know, just facing pressure and taking it head on rather than trying to avoid it. I do think a lot of, maybe not a lot, but I think a good majority of top 20 players right now could benefit in a coaching change because you brought up a point earlier where a lot of the players that break into the top 20 kind of just hover around there and never really advance much further. I don't know if that's a complacency thing or if it's just they've kind of maxed out their potential with their coach. And there's really only one way to find out, right? Get a new coach. Yeah. And I mean, Andre Agassi talked about that in his book. I mean, 
him making changes with his coaching staff, even if he felt like he had success with a certain coach, making that change, you always gain from getting that different perspective from a different coach. Mm -hmm. How many coaches do players have usually? Is it only one or do they have like a whole team of them? I think they may have multiple coaches, but there's usually one kind of main guy mm -hmm. that is essentially the the head coach in charge of what's going yeah. on with their uh, career. I, I asked because I remember when Rublev won the final couple of weeks ago, he was giving his victory speech and he was like, oh, F, I forgot to thank my coach. And then he went in to say that, that he's had more success with this coach since he's changed than with his old coach and he named dropped the old coach too so i'm just wondering if they're like working together or if he kind of left it off on bad terms with his old coach you know what i mean that's kind of a weird thing to say yeah i mean based on the way you say that it sounds like he definitely didn't have the best terms you don't wouldn't really want to be like oh yeah my old coach gave me nothing yeah. i mean well he also doesn't know english that well so he's just like oh yeah like thank you how can i forget you uh yeah. you know you've brought me the most success this year since I made the, the change. I won a title this year since I had you, but I didn't win one before with my old coach. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it's possible. I mean, maybe he's, he's hiding behind the, uh, the issues with English. And right. kind of like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I'm just going to completely shit on this other guy, <laughs> but I'm going to pretend that it was not really intentional. Right. Well, there's a good example. Um, we should follow Rublev to see if, you know, he's one of those top 20, top 10 actually guys who's kind of hovering around there, made this coaching change, won a title. Let's see. Yeah. Kind of the exact idea of that type of guy where mm -hmm. he's almost at that Grand Slam level. He makes runs at Grand Slams. He makes runs at a lot of tournaments, but he's not really considered like a Grand Slam contender at this point. And you know who I think is the like picture perfect model for this? Who's that? Come on, you know. Rude? No, Stefanos. Oh, Sitsipas. Just yeah. because he has a lot more room with coaching. Whereas Rude's dad, he was a professional player. I don't really know too much about Sitsipas's dad and how much he knows about tennis, but I think they should bring someone on in addition to him. To try to just push him to that next level. Try and push him, yeah. Maybe switch something up. I don't know. Pick apart his game completely. I feel like when you have family around you. They try to build you up so much, so much that they are not really looking at the negative things. Where if you bring in an outside party, they kind of have more of a high level view of things and don't really care about your feelings as much. I see. Yeah, 100 percent. But also there's there's an issue in the fact that it's hard for Sitipas probably to give up on his dad as the coach because he made it to multiple Grand Slam finals with his dad as the coach. I think with Stan, it was like he wasn't quite at that grand slam final level yet and this like elevated him a, a good amount whereas with Sitsipas, he's at the level where he's been up two sets to love in a grand slam final yeah no that's fair that's a fair point like you said this guy helped develop Vavrinka's game mm -hmm. maybe if if Sitsipas can get a coach that can help him develop a stronger mindset then it would be yeah yeah big. yeah maybe uh maybe he'll do better with Paulo Badosa yeah she'll be she'll be coaching him <laughs> yeah right. with all of her grand slam wins <laughs> oh that's funny but yeah so yeah so going back to stan though after he changed coaches in 2014 he won his first grand slam the 2014 australian open and he had this win over nadal who was at this point like the undisputed best player in the world 
Like in 2013, Nadal won two Grand Slams and 10 titles, was pretty dominant, pretty impressive comeback year. 2013 is maybe one of the best comeback years of all time. Maybe you compare it to like a 2017 Federer, but really impressive year for Nadal in 2013, comes into 2014 and Vavrinka kind of comes out of nowhere. He's number eight in the world and wins this Grand Slam final in four sets. So it's a pretty comfortable win for him. And what I think is one of the most impressive things is he was 28 years old. So this is a really kind of a late time to get your first Grand Slam for a guy like this. Most guys you'd think are winning their first Grand Slam around like 22, 23 or so. Yeah. I mean, you got to think at 28, you're probably not expecting to ever win a Grand Slam. Maybe even 26, you're starting to think, oh, you know, I can teeter in, win a couple finals, but I'm just not cut out for that. But I think going forward, that's going to start changing because we don't have the big three. Like if you were at 28 in that time and Stan's time, then I would be thinking there's no shot. But right now, I think there's a lot of people, as we mentioned last episode, people who are just starting to come into their peak a little later. Yeah. I mean, 12 years after turning pro, that's kind of insane. I know. He's like one of those guys that is a late bloomer when it comes to puberty. Yeah, exactly. You have some people like Alcaraz and Nadal winning as teenagers, early 20s. And then you have people who win when they're 28. Exactly. But yeah, he got up to number three after that shot from eight to three, which is a ma- like one of the biggest jumps you can maybe take in the rank. Because like you see guys go up like 40 spots when they do well mm-hmm. in some tournament and they go from like 90 to 50. But yeah. going from eight to three is a pretty massive jump. No, I know. And the crazy part about this final two was – so he won the first two sets. And then I'm pretty sure Nadal had gotten like a little – back injury in the second and it kind of looked like it was going to be over from there but then Nadal comes back wins the third and Stan's probably thinking like oh shit I thought this guy was done you know I thought I was cruising so he had to step it back up which it's kind of hard to keep the focus after winning the first two losing the third and then coming eventually to close it out in the fourth yeah the fourth is such a a critical set if you lose that fourth set the other person's gonna have all the momentum going into that fifth I think if that match had probably gone to five, Nadal maybe would have pulled it out. Yeah, just because he's Nadal and that injury probably sparked him even more. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, also interesting thing that happened in 2014 with Vavrinka is he had essentially a name change. Before 2014, he was known as Stanislas, and then it was shortened to Stan. Not really an important aspect of his career, but it is kind of just an interesting thing to note because I remember watching at that time and... Some of the announcers were or commentators were making a big deal about it. Like, oh, he now wants to be called Stan. An interesting <laughs> change. I'm like, why do you guys even care? Like, it's his name. Yeah. Well, is that when Stan the Man became his official nickname? I think do we it, have a stat on that. I don't know. I don't have a stat on when his nickname came around, but he had to get it like changed on the ATP mm-hmm. website and stuff like that. So that's uh, pretty funny. I didn't know that. That's a cool, fun fact. Yeah. He's one of those guys where, announcers love to call him by his first name he's not a last name guy yeah better's a last name guy nadal's definitely a last name guy i mean sometimes they call him rafa that's true if you have a good nickname you can go by the first name yeah but yeah i mean he's had a pretty interesting rivalry with Djokovic. do you want to uh, talk about that a little bit well rivalry i don't know might be a little bit of an overstatement because when they would play these would be grueling five setters with tiebreakers in the fifth set you know Rivalry, not so much, but definitely a 
grueling just match history with with those two. Um, I think he's played Djokovic the best other than the other big three, if that makes sense. Mm, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he definitely has some big match wins over him that we'll probably get into a little bit later going over his career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting because that statement I said about he's probably the person who has played the best against Djokovic in the like modern big three era. But I think Alcaraz will go on to claim that title. As in being As the in best guy to play against Djokovic? Yeah, having the best record against Djokovic other than the big three. Yeah, I think that may be the case, but it's also you're going to always get a situation where when people are considering Alcaraz versus Djokovic, Alcaraz may have the better record in the end, but people are probably going to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt just because you're looking at a 35, 36-year-old Djokovic versus a 20-year-old Alcaraz. So even though Djokovic is still near his top level, you're looking at a massive age difference. That's a good point. Whereas, obviously, with Stan and Djokovic, they were much more similar in age. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's funny how Stan looks a lot older. I feel like he was never really in tennis player shape. Yeah, he definitely has a unique kind of body. He doesn't look like the really thin... Like, I mean, I think when you think of kind of a tennis player body, you more think of a a sinner type of player. Mm -hmm. Very thin, very kind of lanky. But they still generate power with their shots, but... Their body isn't necessarily very sturdy. Yeah. I don't know the right word, but yeah, Vavrinka definitely like more has more muscular. of a, a solid build, I'd say. Yeah. Well, I know I've told this story before on this podcast, but when I went to the US Open last year and he was playing on the outside court and I went to go see him, he was in a tiebreaker. I ended up waiting for like 25 minutes to even get into the stadium because they don't let you in while they're playing. So I finally make it in, get in my seat, and he retires the match. Oh my God. So I never got to see him. Still have not seen Stan, but I'm going to count that as I saw him. Yeah, exactly. You're like, I saw I saw him retire. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. Speaking of him in these matches against Djokovic, do you think that he was the biggest challenger to the big three? Because I think it really boils down to him or Murray. And in my opinion, it has to be Murray just because I think Murray won more big matches over the big three. But it depends how you value this Grand Slam wins. Because in those situations, Vavrinka has these big wins in the critical moments, won the final over Nadal. We're going to get into how he beat Djokovic in some finals. But I think Murray won finals that weren't necessarily in slams, but were still important finals to win. And he ended up taking a lot more titles overall. So when Vavrinka's name is brought up, it usually is fifth, you know, behind Murray. I'm going to take a contrarian view and say that, yeah, I think he was the biggest challenger to the big three for that exact reason you said before, that he's won in more matches that it counts, like the Grand Slams. Not to discount other wins and say they don't count, but I think Grand Slams are the biggest stages, and they're just worth more. Those matches, I think, if you were to rate them, you would essentially... There's a reason why you get more points in a Grand Slam versus another tournament. So I think it's just weighted more. So I weight that more on his ability to beat the big three. Yeah, well, that's true. But I think that if you look at it overall, other than those three Grand Slam finals and one, Murray made 11. I mean, it isn't great to have that eight losses in Grand Slam finals, but it does show that he was able to beat guys and get there. 
like I'm sure there were tournaments where he beat the big three to make it to the final. Mm. So it's not necessarily just if you're talking about, oh, who performed the best in finals against the big three, you pretty much have to say Vavrinka because he has such a crazy win percentage. Mm-hmm. But if you're going, who is just the biggest challenger to them overall? I feel like you have to say Murray. Yeah. Okay. Well, when you word it like that, yes. There are like three different questions in there. What do you mean? Like you said, um, if oh, if you word it like this, then this is the answer. But if you word it like that, then you can come up with this answer. But ultimately... Okay. Well, if you're looking at overall, if the question yeah. is, who is the biggest challenger to the big three? I, In my opinion, it is Murray. The only way that it would be Vavrinka would be if the question was instead, who was most successful against the big three in Grand Slam finals? Mm-hmm. Which is a very specific situation it's an interesting situation that he was so successful in these finals but it's a much more specified question right i think the point i was trying to make was murray is the undisputed fourth place but stan could still be more of a bigger of a challenge to the big three i guess based on the history (laughs) they might be more worried coming up in a final against vavrinka than they might against murray yeah okay let's we could settle on that but yeah, I mean, speaking of the big three, how do you think his legacy was really impacted, though, by him being the Swiss number two, essentially, behind Federer? Because mm-hmm. even when I, he was ranked higher than Federer, I think he was never really the Swiss number one, even when he was in his prime. Yeah, you think he just kind of lived in the shadows of Federer? Yeah, because even while though he was at some point like ranked higher than him and he technically mm-hmm. was the Swiss number one, you weren't thinking of Vavrinka as the best Swiss player. You were like, if I'm going to pick a guy to do well in this tournament and I'm picking a Swiss guy, I'm picking Federer. Yeah, I think Vavrinka was almost in that position of like Federer's little brother, you know, like where Federer, whenever he would play him and whenever they were coming up, he never had to worry about Stan. Whereas I can't really compare Nadal and Alcaraz because it's just way too far in age. But yeah. Three years versus, what, 15? Yeah, exactly. And I also think Nadal kind of has more to fear with Alcaraz than Federer had with Vavrinka because Nadal's at the end of his career. You know, he's more susceptible to to a loss, whereas Federer was in pretty peak shape. So do you think he has less of a legacy because of Federer? I think definitely. I mean, I think if you're talking to Swiss people, Federer's like a god and Vavrinka is like a good player that's Swiss. Yeah, that's just kind of like a know your role type of thing, you know? Yeah. Where... And also the fact that Federer is 23 and 3 against Vavrinka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, he really had nothing to worry about. He was like his big brother. Exactly. You could you could think of it, uh, you've seen Taldega Knights, right? Yeah. Remember, he would essentially use him to win. Yeah. You know, like Ricky grass. Bobby. Yeah. Ricky yeah. Bobby and uh, yeah. the other guy. I don't remember. Yeah, the, uh... exactly. The other guy. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, no, shake I know and in, bake, baby. In marathons, too, people have pace setters for them. Yeah. Like, guys, oh, the Tour de France is a good example, exactly. too. Exactly. There's a whole team of people, but really only, like, one is there to win. Exactly. Yeah, no, all the uh, the domestiques. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, did you watch that uh, Tour de France show? I didn't, but my good friend was telling me all about it. It was a very good well, show. Well, Netflix screwed me here. I don't have access to my Netflix anymore because it's my family account. So now the TV says, oh, this is not the home damn home TV. And yeah, I just haven't watched Netflix. Can't watch Breakpoint either. But yeah, I mean, even comparing the two's playing style, like you look at Federer 
and he's so graceful on the court, beautiful footwork. And like we were talking about earlier, Vavrinka, much more of a, a sturdy looking guy, yeah. more physical <laughs> player. And I think the big difference is highlighted in the difference of like their one-handed backhands. Mm-hmm. Like Federer, if you look at his backhand, it looks like he's just placing the ball. It's like completely under control. Even when he goes for a powerful shot, it looks much more smooth. Mm-hmm. Whereas like Vavrinka, it looks as though he's just swinging his entire body and the rack is just going with it. Yeah, I agree. Another visual difference between the two, you know, how Federer kind of has that reputation of somehow he doesn't sweat when he's on the court. He just always looks great and then yeah. stands over here like drenched in sweat. Exactly, yeah. T-shirt sticking to his body. Just 100%. a grittier looking guy. Exactly, exactly. Even the, the clean shaven versus the, yeah. the beard. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, so we kind of alluded to these earlier, but he has had some massive wins in his career, though. I mean, if you look at just the record in slams, like against Djokovic, he's he lost in Wimbledon earlier this year, month ago, or whatever it was. But Djokovic just took the advantage in terms of their record against each other in Grand Slams. Now it's five to four. But before that, it was completely even in Grand wow. Slams. So like we were talking about, Vavrinka really is that game-time player that you may be afraid of playing against. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's that's a crazy stat. I didn't know that. That's really um... insane. In the Grand Slam finals, like we were talking about earlier, Stan has won both. They've mm-hmm. played in two Grand Slam finals, and Stan won both of them, the 2015 French Open uh, final and the 2016 U.S. Open final, which is actually an interesting thing about that is, like, Vavrinka is closer technically to the career Grand Slam than Murray is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and so speaking of those wins... I was wondering, like, do you have any idea of what his, like, the best moment in his career was? Because for me, I got to say that it was that 2015 French Open win over Djokovic because Djokovic was having, like, one of the best seasons of all time. From the Australian Open of that year to the ATP Finals at the end of the year, Djokovic made the final of every single tournament he played in, and he won 11 and lost four. And you're just like, this guy is at just another level. And so what makes that the best moment for Stan to me is that a, he denied this guy that was on a roll, but B he also denied Djokovic his first French open title. And to that point that stopped Djokovic from having the career grand slam. Ooh. Yeah. So, so Djokovic, that's your, that's your favorite moment. Yeah. Stan and cause moment. Djokovic, Djokovic was hungry for that title. It's not uh-huh. like, Oh, I already have five Australian opens. Like maybe you're not as intense about, winning that one when you're going for that career grand slam that's such a massive thing for your career and stan stopped him which is really impressive yeah well kind of going off that so you know how stan can be referred to as a clay court specialist yeah i mean what are your thoughts do you think he's better on clay than djokovic is i don't think that did that have anything to do with the win or was it just it's it's tough to say because obviously stan is very strong on on clay but I think also just his level at that point was very high. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't necessarily just that it was on clay. I don't think you could really say that Stan is a better clay court player than Djokovic. Mm-hmm. But on that day, he was the better player. It, it, sometimes, you look, sometimes you look at a match and you're like, oh, this guy just played terrible. Mm-hmm. I think in that match, it was Stan was the better player in that situation. 
Well, speaking of Djokovic, yeah, I mean, my favorite stand moment was the 2016 U.S. Open. It was also against Djokovic, and it was his last Grand Slam. He was 31 years old to win it. And I think that kind of solidified his position. You know, like that's a big feat, three Grand Slams. Very few guys have done that. Especially in the last 20 years. Yeah. I mean, even guys that have been – there are plenty of guys that have been the world number one player that have never mm -hmm. won that many Grand Slams. Yeah, see? And you don't remember – I mean, this is just me, maybe recency bias, but you don't remember them like you do Stan. Yeah, well, yeah. that could be total just me making that up. Well, yeah, I mean, we we talked about oh, we've talked about a lot of guys that have won slams. So I think for us, we would uh, know who yeah. they might be. But definitely in terms of a household name, people people that know tennis to a marginal mm-hmm. extent definitely know Vavrinka. Something I did want to bring up too, as part of you know my favorite favorite stand moment is he has a tattoo on his arm and it reads. Always tried, always failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. Something along those lines. And that just goes to show his determination. He's the latest peaking like player to win a Grand Slam. He's gone up against Djokovic for eight years without having ever beat him. Finally beats him in two Grand Slams. Stan is someone, I'm glad we did this spotlight on him because it brought to light a lot of things I didn't know about him. But yeah, I mean, that kind of brings me to like, who Stan is today? I mean, he obviously just played in his final. Like, how much longer do you think he's going to play? I mean, are you looking at him? You're looking at Murray. How can you stay motivated at this point in your career, knowing you're probably never going to get back to that point you were at? You just got to love the game. Like, that's his job. That's his career. Maybe once he finds something that he's just as passionate about and what he wants to do once tennis is over, he could officially move on from the game. But until then, this is what he loves. This is what he knows, you know. 100%. All righty, you ready to uh, hop into segments? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, let's start off with what is new. I saw Djokovic's dad wants him to retire in the next year. What? I know, I know. Yeah, he said, he's quoted in a newspaper article basically saying, um, I'd like to see Djokovic retire by the end of 2024. You know, everything's kind of weighing on him right now, and I'm ready and excited for him to move on to the next chapter of his life. Cause apparently to his dad, tennis was only just like a, a segment, you know, but to Djokovic, it's the last 30 years of his, of his life practically. Yeah. Based on like that story of the, uh, people, he put like the dollar on the table yeah. and was like, yeah. okay, you, you're going to need to grind to be the best. It seems like his dad's mindset about tennis was like, it's a career. It's, it's a way to make money. It's a way you can achieve all these things. And to Djokovic, it's exactly, it's his whole life. He's lived as wanting to be the best player ever for 30 years. It's hard to now change and be like, I want to be done, especially when you're at such a level like Djokovic is. Like I was saying with Murray and Vavrinka, obviously for them, they're kind of, they know they're on the downturn. They know that the end is coming soon for Djokovic. Like he, he just played in the Wimbledon final. How do you tell him, Hey, I think you're ready to be done. I think this is just part of that parental instinct that you always feel like, you know, what's best for your child. And at the end of the day, Djokovic is still his son. You know, um, I think he's starting to see Djokovic as someone who's not able to take his foot off the gas. If that makes sense, you know, like his dad kind of created a monster in a sense, and now he's trying to tame him. 
I see what you're saying. Yeah, his dad probably feels a little bit of the weight on his shoulders. How like he turned Djokovic into an absolute animal to someone who's a competitive beast. Like that's that's yeah. really hard to turn off. Um, and I think his dad's kind of like, oh, you know, yeah, work life balance. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. No, no. I think what you find with a guy like Djokovic is that because he's such a animal about oh, I got to be locked in on this. I got to be locked in on my diet. I got to be locked in on how I'm playing in this. I got to be locked in on all these things. You see that exactly it's hard to turn that off. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be hard when he gets to the a point where he can't play at the same level. And he's having to be like, you don't want to have to have that mental stress, like especially after you've retired. Mm-hmm. And that's something you are worried about if Djokovic can't turn that off. Yeah, exactly. I think also it we're seeing the changing of the guard too. So I feel like his dad just kind of wants him to get out while he's still on top rather than prolonging this career and eventually turning it into loss after loss after loss, which I feel like if Djokovic had won Wimbledon, it would have been way easier for him to retire than it is now. Maybe. Well, I mean... We'll see how he does in the U.S. Open. Yeah, I think exactly. Uh, that'll give a All good right. indicator. All right, moving on. What did you see in the news this week? The other thing I saw, I mean, another retirement rumor is Ooh. for Kyrgios. Kyrgios said that he's considering retiring early. I mean, for him, what he said was that like partying and drinking and stuff like that has caught up with him because he says, oh, I'm 28. I can't imagine what it's going to be like to play at 33. And to me, this kind of is perfect to go with the Djokovic one because Djokovic is the perfect example of taking perfect care of your body, being in excellent shape, having your everything everything locked in. And Kyrgios is the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. And this shows how that impacts your career because Kyrgios is eight years younger than Djokovic. But if you look at how probably their bodies are in terms of like age, like like physical age, it's probably much more comparable because Djokovic's diet and workouts are all so locked in and Kyrgios is essentially relying pretty much purely on talent. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I just don't think he's enjoying it. I, I don't know if he was ever enjoying tennis. I think he was a guy where he was so incredibly talented that I think he really enjoyed probably winning a lot. Mm -hmm. And when you're really good at winning and you're really good at something, it's hard to stop doing it, especially when people are giving you praise, like, Oh, this guy's so good. He wins all these things. Oh, this guy's great. And who wouldn't like that? But then when you get to that level where, the talent can't take you really any further, which is crazy to think about because his talent is a top like 10 level yeah. player, essentially yeah. like a grand slam finalist. That probably has the best natural talent. Yeah. Of, of people on the tour right now, he's probably up there in terms of natural talent, but with his mental attitude and stuff like not having a coach, it's a situation where you do understand that, retirement was coming for him pretty early you didn't expect him to be playing at 38 yeah he also has that meniscus injury too that he's kind of nursing yeah Ah, man i wonder how players just decide to shotgun retirements because i feel like 
Kyrgios have has mentioned before he's talked about retirement like if it's something that you just kind of say to get yourself out in the news and for publicity and then not retire like it's almost like a PR strategy to get more hype around you so when you do play they're like oh this is the last time he could be playing right now he could be retiring you know you kind of create that hype which in a sense could very well make you play better because it gives you two outs right if you win on top, you can retire. But if you don't win, then you can always say like, no, I'm coming back for another one. So it gives yeah. you options. I see what you're saying. I don't know if it's a PR thing, but I think Curious could be very well on the back end of his career. All right. Who are you taking for bet of the week? Bet of the week. I mean, just to start off for bet of the week, I was incredibly wrong about my bet last week. I mean... I called an upset for Quinn over Vukic, mm-hmm. and now Vukic is playing in the final in Atlanta. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, he's going to lose in the first round, and now he's, like, made it all the way to the final. So <laughs> sometimes that's, sometimes when you're wrong, you're wrong big. But That's pretty funny because I was looking at the final today, and I'm like, wait, Vukic? That name sounds familiar, yeah. but I don't know who it is. Yeah, but – uh yeah, my bet of the week is Kevin Anderson plus 145 over Jordan Thompson. It's a tough bet because I think Thompson is no slouch, and he's had a pretty solid 2023. He's made a couple decent runs, but I think for Anderson, obviously coming out of retirement, played his first tournament at the Hall of Fame Open, I think he's going to be just hungry for the win, and obviously he's a top-10 level player formerly. So I think the odds may actually – be a little skewed because of that. I kind of expected, to be honest, that he would have better odds given the fact that he is coming out of retirement, but I still think he could get the win as the underdog. Yeah, I am i don't really know Kevin Anderson too well, but I know Jordan Thompson. I feel like he tends to do well in smaller tournaments. Like I, you hear his name a lot yeah. more. And, I mean, Kevin Anderson uh, really is – his, South really African? yeah south african exactly yeah, okay. he's his most famous things is like i believe he's made it to a couple of grand slam finals including uh at wimbledon there was a wimbledon year where he beat who was it i think isner like 26 24 in a fifth oh, set yeah, yeah. and then in like the next round he beat federer like 14 12 or something like that or maybe 10 8 i don't remember what it was but he had like two marathon matches and then played Djokovic in the final and got beaten <laughs> it's like yeah i mean that's kind of rough just yeah. you had to go through such intense time on court compared to Djokovic. but oh geez i know but yeah what well, about you week, what's your better yeah week? this week i'm taking what i what should be a lock um mcdonald minus 190 over schwartzman i'm a little biased here um I just don't think Schwartzman is a force to be reckoned with anymore. Like, obviously, he was good back in the day, but I think he's kind of on the back end of his career. McDonald's um, and quite the opposite. He's coming up. McDonald's or <laughs> McDonald's. McDonald's is actually coming off a loss from uh, Mickelson last tournament. Remember, Mickelson yeah. had that crazy run. So, I feel like losing to an 18-year-old kind of lights a fire under you and you come in like, okay, I'm not early exiting another tournament. Um, You know, it's pretty embarrassing losing to an 18-year-old one week and then, you know, someone who's at the end of their career the next where you're right in the middle. 
Um, you know, he's played a lot more matches this year. He's 21 and 20, whereas Schwartzman's only nine and 19. And at the end of the day, I think he's a favorite for a reason. So I'm going with him. Yeah. Uh, you want to hop into match of the week? Yeah. 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 So my match of the week was Vera winning the Hamburg open today. Um, it wasn't really a tight match by any means. He won in two sets. He didn't drop a set the whole tournament actually, but this was my match of the week because I like seeing Zverev win and he hasn't won a final since 2021 had that brutal ankle ankle injury. So I'm just happy to see him get one, especially in his hometown too. It's awesome. You know, just the sheer emotion you can see in his face after he won almost like a sigh of relief. Cause I feel like when it's your hometown tournament, a lot more pressure goes on you because you're almost expected to win. And it's very disappointing to the crowd if you don't. So I'm glad he got that one. 100%. Yeah. My match of the week is uh, Vavrinka over Sonigo in the semifinal of Croatia. Obviously, unfortunately, didn't get it done in the final. But I think what was really cool about this match was you were watching them playing on clay. And they had some great touch. They had some great plays. But Vavrinka displayed like a really impressive level of mobility for a 38-year-old. It was he made some gets where you're like, how is this guy getting there? Especially when he's not really, I feel like, known for being this guy that gets to every ball. Like he was getting some impressive, uh, tough gets. So yeah. it was good to see. It was just like overall a high level of tennis. But yeah, I'd say that was my match of the week. I know he was I, he was planning to get to a final. That's just the best way to put it. Hundred percent. Yeah. Great. Well, I hope you guys enjoy, enjoyed the Stand the Man Spotlight, and we'll see you next week. All right, and that's the show. If you're not already subscribed, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube at Painting Lines Podcast. Feel free to shoot us a DM or email us any questions or thoughts at paintinglinespodcast at gmail.com.